Welcome to 9 to Thrive, a show about balancing work, community, and creativity. These are pandemic recording times, so you will probably hear the occasional woof of a very small miniature schnauzer, Minette. You may hear crows. You may hear my neighbors. You will definitely hear my guests' kids. As we figure out how to deal with the world and our jobs and our families and our relationships. Many, many people have to work out how to work and also in the community part of this, educate their kids. So my guests for now are all homeschoolers who work. Some run their own businesses, some work outside the home, some consult, some are writers, artists, community activists. There's a broad range of people and voices. But one thing that we all share, one thing that we have in common is a message for parents that are struggling during the pandemic with remote schooling. And that is that homeschooling is so much easier. It requires less of your dedicated time. It can free up your children to really become deep thinkers. It, it can be a respite year for them. For kids with learning disabilities, it can remove a lot of the difficult parts of being overstimulated in a group of kids. But more than that, it is many, many times over proven to be an effective way for kids to learn. And we, we've done it, and our kids have been in school and out of school. Our kids have made that transition. We've made that transition countless times. I want to take a little while and talk about effective ways to manage the holidays. All of us have had, I think I can say it's a pretty universal experience, where we worked so hard to create a memorable holiday for our family. I remember almost the mind-blowing realization that I was actually the director and stage manager of the holidays. And that was my situation. Some people have more assistance than I did. But in any case, as adults, as parents, we are in charge of making the holidays happen in whatever way we want them to. And I think all of us have experienced bringing ourselves to the brink of exhaustion, trying to make something memorable, something magical, something close that wasn't at all truly appreciated. Or rather, maybe our kids were too young to expect appreciation, but the outcome was distress on the part of our kids. There is a magic moment between kids receiving presents, kids being the focus of a magical experience, and that having a tipping point into misery. It's a combination of sleep, overstimulation, sugar, a lot of times, you know, just the excitement of the candy, the excitement of the holidays, the expectations of the holidays. But one of the things we often don't really understand is that kids who are given too much are not truly happy kids. 
It's one of those places where it's important for us to recognize that our desire to give may not match up developmentally with a child's capacity to receive. And when the kids blow up, that starts to go downhill. Everybody's enjoyment of the holiday suffers. And we start reframing our kids as being bratty and ungrateful. And that is avoidable. This is a situation, as I started out by saying, we are in charge of this entire setup. If you think of it as a play, we wrote the script, we found the props, we set the stage, we directed all of this, and we stage managed all of this. So if we melt down or the kids melt down, we had numerous points at which we could have avoided this. So thing number one to keep in mind, don't keep taking on jobs in this. Don't keep taking on, I want to say thankless jobs, but even if you are thanked, don't keep taking on more and more and more and more management jobs simply because you've gotten better at the ones you did before. You don't have to inflate the holidays every year for kids. In fact, it's bad for them. Second, and this is, I think, the most, well, no, I can't say that. There's a number of really important pieces to this. Stop buying your kids so much stuff. Stuff is a burden. Stuff does not indicate to your kids that you love them more. Love indicates to your kids that you love them more. Acceptance, trust, spending time with them, paying attention to them, being curious to hear their thoughts, and listening to their thoughts. Those are what indicate to a child that you love them. Another present after they have already been completely satiated and are tipping into overwhelm, it's not a gift. It's a performance at that point. At that point, you, the director, the stage manager, the producer of this holiday, have now stepped on stage to star. It is a burden to children. Also, if you have a tradition where a magical entity brings presents for the children. If you have a tradition where you exchange gifts with each other, and if you have an extended family, then there is no way you should be buying many gifts for the children. Try using the rule of four. Something they want, something they need, something to play with, something to read. And that actually, in my experience, always ended up being the rule of three because the play with or the need were things that they wanted. That is plenty from any kind of traditional secret. I'm trying to figure out ways to say this because I never know the age group of people listening. But for any of those traditional holidays to find that array as gifts to them is plenty. For gifts from person to person, sibling to sibling, parent to child, consider things that are homemade. And I am saying that with a little bit of reluctance because 
we are all working so hard all the time, nonstop. If you enjoy making things, consider doing something homemade. Otherwise, there are so many reasons to pull back on how many gifts we give kids. It is bad for them. But it's also bad for the world they're going to inherit. How much of the stuff you get is really just destined for the landfill? That's demand, and then there's supply. Sometimes it's supply first and then demand. But there's a saying from a famous 19th century philosopher who said, have nothing in your homes that is not useful or beautiful. So be thinking about that when you do your holiday shopping. Is this useful or beautiful for my kids, for my home, for the environment I want to be in? Next up, if you do buy stuff, spend time in around Thanksgiving getting rid of stuff, passing it on, moving it on, bringing it to thrift stores, exchanging it with other people. Move out the amount that you move in. There's a statistic that says that we increase the size of our household in terms of goods, in terms of objects, by 30% every year. Imagine that times the number of people in your family, the amount of people in your family. So it is getting huge and huger and huger and huger. This is a burden. It's a burden on your kids. It's a burden on society, on the planet, and a burden on your household. Everything that goes in will somehow have to be taken out. So what's a better way to do this? Well, the something they want, something they need, something play with, something to read, that's a decent enough metric. Consider, however, getting things for your kids, especially as they grow, that do not require storage. So what kinds of things are those? This is where creativity comes in. Who do you know that would be a great person for your kids to know better? Can they go spend a week with them doing what they do? learning what they learn. Do you have an uncle that's a blues musician? How cool would it be for your kids to go spend a week with that uncle on on tour even or whatever, learning from them? Maybe they just spend the week and learn. Right now, given all the pandemic issues, maybe you are signing your kids up for lessons for something they didn't know they could do. Another way to build these relationships, these lifelong relationships, is to find something you can all do together. Something unusual you can all do together. Again, pandemic makes that difficult, but we will not be in pandemic forever. So one thing that we started doing was a something special to do with each parent without siblings that the kid wanted to do. And sometimes that was going to a museum. Sometimes it was going to a sports event. Sometimes it was, I did a really great weekend with one of my kids to be a tourist in a nearby city where I had never been. I I was so familiar with it. I had never done all the touristy things, the boat that drives around and goes in the water. I had never done that. All the fun touristy things. And we had a blast It was not an expensive trip. It was a terrific trip. We've done an overnight. We actually do this as a birthday gift. An overnight in New York City 
where I got the hotel on price line. I, you know, actually, <laughs> I got very posh hotels for very little money. And then we stood in line early in the morning and got our tickets for the show for very little money. These were affordable weekends and certainly something we could save up for and do. Granted, I'm only about four and a half, five hours from the city, but there are places you are close enough to you can do this kind of thing. But then not only did you get a trip with a parent, when we switched over to do more of this, we also did something fun as a family. We would all go see a ball game. We would all go to Cirque du Soleil. We would just get tickets for that event, whatever it was. And that's usually what it was, tickets to something special. Emphasize people over things. That's a good rule of thumb for life in general. Things don't matter. People do. The last thing to do to create a calmer holiday is to de-emphasize the day itself and to re-emphasize the season. I'm going to speak to Christmas because that's what my family celebrates. And because Hanukkah, for example, has eight days, which helps de-emphasize the importance of one specific day. And I know there are many other holidays out there that either can benefit from this advice or not. As with all advice from me, take the love, ditch what you need to. But for Christmas, we often end up in a position of with the phrase ruining Christmas, which by the way, no one can. It exists whether or not you celebrate it. It exists whether or not it was fun. No one can ruin it. But more importantly is to stop putting all the focus on December 24th and 25th, the night before and the day of. All of these Christmas carols talk about 12 days of Christmas. We celebrate this long time and we act as if the day is done and it's all over. We put everything away off in the next day. We toss out the tree the next day. There's reasons not to do this. And the first is just human. In the Northern Hemisphere, most of us are in areas where light is restricted at this time of year. And we are right at the winter solstice in which it is the darkest point of the year. Cultures that seem to do better with this fraught holiday emphasize the community relationships across a couple of days. We are in charge of the theater of this holiday. So if we decide we're going to pick up something from Sweden or Denmark, or if we're going to grab something from medieval England or Ireland, we can do this. We have the right to do this. So if we want to emphasize the first of the year. If we want to emphasize the 5th of January, we can do that. If we want to emphasize what was called Boxing Day, which used to be when you would pack up stuff and give it to your extended family and community, we can do that. We can make that just as important. And I'll tell you why it is a kind and fulfilling way to see the holidays. Many of us have families where we're split. And one parent is in a position of feeling terrible every year if they don't have the kids for that one day. We can give our families the gift of extending the holidays so that when you see your other parent on Boxing Day, 
it has its own deep tradition and excitement. To be able to de-emphasize the day of Christmas as being the only part and re-emphasize this season that it is in fact a multi-day and it certainly can be a multi-day celebration where every day has something a little bit special every day has a little bit something different and we fully celebrate those times it will allow us to be first of all less exhausted and it will allow us to give the grace of a full community and the full joy and love to our family and that kind of gift is a million times more precious than something that comes in a box. With me today is Julie Leonard, and we're going to be talking about balancing homeschool and working and life. Hi, Julie. Thanks for being on the show today. Thanks for inviting me. So why don't you start by telling me a little bit about your family? <laughs> you have a dog. <laughs> I have a dog. So I have two older children that are 30 and 29 that do not live with me. And I have, and they went to public schools and private okay. schools. And I have two younger children that are 16 and 13. And I have homeschooled them since the beginning. Okay, great. So you've been in both, been in both worlds. Yes. Yeah. So tell me a little bit. So what, what kind of, what are the, let's start out with the challenges. What are the challenges of working around educating them at home? Time, really. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm lucky enough that I am a pediatric home care nurse. So when they were younger, when they were very young, I, I did not work. I, I was at home and I've been working for probably the last seven or eight years. Uh -huh. And I was lucky enough that I could work at nights okay. or weekends. I'm divorced, so they would be with their dad or a babysitter. And as they got older, they could be by themselves for a limited amount of time. Right. So I, I think that that's the biggest challenge is finding the time to work and have an income to be able to do all the fun things that you can do when you homeschool. And then finding the time to be with them and, and not be at work and not be thinking about work. Well, the time piece is interesting because it, it's hand in hand with that childcare piece. Yes. It wasn't hard to find childcare because a lot of parents that their children are in school, they're looking to make extra money by babysitting other kids. Oh, interesting. Yes. So my kids could go to a person's house. They've got all the toys there and, and that person's own children are at school. Oh, wow. Wow. You're willing to take other people's children, but you don't want your own children here. <laughs> so that was, that was sometimes interesting. But my kids did not enjoy that. They, they really didn't like childcare. Mm. But, you know, as a parent, you kind of got to do what you got to do sometimes. Well, you do. And one of the first things I often hear from people is, you know, it's so funny. People argue for their limitations so much harder than their possibilities. But a lot of times I'll hear, oh, well, I can't possibly homeschool. My kid has to do remote school because I work. Or, oh, I can't do it because I'm a single mom. And I'm like, other people have done it. Like, so don't, that. there are reasons. I mean, I actually am kind of like, own the reason. The reason is I don't want to, or I'm afraid to. Right. Those are the reasons. Yep. <laughs> There's Absolutely. no can't in this because people do do this. 
Yes. And I, I think that it's a, you know, it's a choice that you make and it does come with its own share of sacrifices. Mm. When I was a single mom working and homeschooling my children, I couldn't work full time. Mm -hmm. I worked 30 hours a week. I worked 24 hours a week, which meant that, you know, we didn't vacation in Disney and we didn't go out to eat all the time and we didn't have the best of clothing. For myself, it was just a choice, though, that I'd rather educate my own children than send them to school eight months out of the year to make the money so that I could have a better home or better vacation or better clothes. Well, that brings up that brings up first of all, that's an interesting like investment sort of idea, which is a cool way to look at it. But it's also sort of reminding me that for all of that and there and I'm not downgrading any of the pain and the loss that people are feeling right now, but the fact is no one's gonna go to Disney. Certainly not this year, and there's a good chance not next year either. Right. So to the extent that it's possible, like a lot of the activity stuff that we might expect to pay a lot of money for, I mean, even down to gasoline, is off the table for this time. So to some extent, people can simplify and, I don't know, feel better about the homeschooling option. Right. Yes. I, I think so. Or even if you're, if you're dropping and you're working part-time, I, I think that also there's, there is more time because the children are not going to sports. The children are go, not right. going to theater or Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts. So there's more time during your day to either work or homeschool and, and find that balance because it's not crowded out by extracurricular activities. Yeah, and every extracurricular activity comes with a transportation cost. Yes. <laughs> a sure transportation co time cost. Yeah. I don't even just mean like the transportation cost, but the, the time cost where you go, okay, well, if, if you have two kids and each of them has an hour-long thing, and then you start figuring out what the logistics of getting them there and back and to where they need to be. All of that's gone for the next year, possibly two. Right. And the reason I say that isn't because I'm down on everything, but it's because the last major, you know, plague we had like this took two years to wend its way through. And once a vaccine comes, I, I they're going to give it to a certain population that needs it most first. Right. Yeah. <laughs> So when you talk about the time piece, I guess there's a, you know, I, I, it's always funny to talk to people because we're talking about slices in a long continuum. So it's kind of funny to be like, at this point, what did you, but per like per day, when you were working part time and you're homeschooling kids and how much of the day did you spend on like, a, how much of that day was taken into the homeschooling piece? I would say the way we homeschooled, it was more like part of our life. So mm -hmm. we did not sit down at the table between nine and 12 and open a book and learn and do some worksheets and stuff like that. It was more like we were living our lives and living it together and, and learning how to do things together. So learning how to cook together, learning how to go grocery shopping together. And those things involve math and they involve planning and executive functioning. And then we might go to the playground for hanging out with some friends. So there's your socialization and um, athletics and phys ed and navigating through problem solving. If two kids want to play on the same swing. Right. Reading was always a very important part of our lives, but that kind of happened, 
usually at bedtime, we would read to one another or they would have time during the day that they could read, going to the library every week or sometimes twice a week um, mm. in the winter time. So it was kind of, I would say on average, less than three hours a day that you could chalk up and say, this is what they're learning. Right. And well, and, yeah, and it's important to say too that like that's the three hours a day of that's sort of been like carved out of your day, but all the stuff they learn through the rest of the day counts, which I, I think is just a really interesting mind pretzel for people to get around. Yes. I think my daughter one time when she was questioned, we were at the grocery store and she was questioned about why she wasn't in school. She says, well, I'm homeschooled, which means I'm either never in school or I'm in school all the time. <laughs> and, and, you know, I think she was eight years old and I was like that. She nailed it because when you go through your day, you can just talk about whatever comes up and that's an education. Right. Right. I remember so, with I remember with one of mine, she had spent the morning in rehearsals for an opera and had spent the afternoon at a museum and somebody, you know, cornered her at some public place and was like, so what did you learn then today at homeschooling? And she said, she got really shy and she said, nothing. I didn't learn anything. <laughs> I remember being like, oh, we need to think of some ways to get you to say a little different something there. <laughs> right. Well, I, I think it's neat because the children don't realize that they're learning. Yeah, they they don't, you know, when you go to school, you go to a brick and mortar building, you go there to learn. When you're living life, you're learning through, through just living life kind of thing. Yeah. So there is not a lot of measurable benchmarks or tabs that say, oh, today I learned this, tomorrow I'm going to learn that, and the next day I'm going to learn that. Yeah. And, and it's funny because I, it's funny when, to hear that because it's sort of like, <laughs> There aren't any of those measurable benchmarks, but it also honestly doesn't matter. Like, they still learn, and they still learn at roughly the same pace as their peers, and they still come out fine, and those benchmarks aren't there. Absolutely. <laughs> Which Absolutely. I just think is so astonishing. <laughs> I think that that's human nature. Human nature is is going to always learn regardless of the situation they're in. And I think a lot yeah. of times that's, um, they're going to learn what, what they desire to learn and they're going to learn it when they want to learn it, not when the school says you have to learn this in the second grade and this in the third grade. You know, that makes me wonder, it's really interesting uh, to talk to you about this because it, it keeps bringing up these questions. It makes me wonder what or where the idea comes from that that is not the default state for human beings like we act as if kids have to be punished into learning somehow or if they if they didn't you know if they didn't have this institutional structure they would be ignorant or they wouldn't learn and yet all the truly desperately ignorant people i know went through a school system k through 12 right it's not a guarantee and there's it's almost like this sort of weird original sin about it like oh they're all going to be idiots unless we do this thing to them. <laughs> yeah. And you're right. It just, they, they are constantly learning. They were constantly learning before they went into school. Exactly. I, a lot of times when I encounter young parents of young children that say they, 
oh, I could never homeschool my children. And I, I remind them that they've taught their children how to walk, how to yeah. speak, how to eat, how to get dressed, how to tie their shoes. So they're natural teachers. And right. they are able to teach their child. They've already proved it. That's a really good metaphor because one of the other things I hear from people a lot is, well, I wasn't trained as a teacher. And it's like so much of homeschooling isn't really you are imparting your wisdom into an empty mug and filling it up full of knowledge and moving it on. When you homeschool, you're doing exactly what you did when it was time for them to walk. You like made a safe environment for them to work on walking. You put your hand out when they seem to kind of want to need something to balance on. Yeah. We don't stand there, most of us, and are like, leg to the right, <laughs> five, six, seven, eight, leg to the left. <laughs> right. That's really interesting. It's kind of a nice, it's a nice reminder that all of, that that's how learning happens. That's a human learn. Humans learn. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I, I I cook dinner every night. I've never, I'm not a cook. I didn't go to cooking school. So I, I don't, when people say, well, I'm not a teacher. I say, well, you are, you are a teacher. Yeah. Yeah. And they're going to learn regardless. <laughs> Yeah. They're always gonna learn. <laughs> so, did you have um? Did you have any support from you know a community or co-parents or anything like that when you were when when you were a single mom at home with with the kids? As far as homeschooling goes, yes. We, um, myself, and three other families met. I believe my daughter was five, and this was way back with Yahoo groups. Yeah. And remember those? Yeah, I remember those. So there were there was a group, perhaps it was called the Southeastern Homeschoolers. And they would put up different activities going on and you could gather and all of the activities were for the quote unquote school age children, age eight and up. And oh. I happened to meet online four other families that had children that were all under six. Okay. So we got together one day, we down in, um, I want to say maybe Dartmouth, and met each other, and immediately it clicked. We all had the same ideas about what we wanted for our children and why we wanted to homeschool our children, and we made a commitment to each other and to our children to get together every single Monday. Oh, nice. And we did that very consistently for about eight years. The past two years, less consistent because people are traveling and there's different things that come up. Hmm. But I, last fall, we celebrated our 10th um, year anniversary when we went away to New Hampshire together. And these parents and children became more like family and sisters and brothers and siblings or cousins. When you see someone every single week, and it wasn't to educate, it was to go to a museum or go to the park right. or you know, just uh, we would create things and fun things to do and they would learn. Right. So right. that was really, really important to have some kind of support for when at any point we questioned ourselves, you could bounce ideas off of one another. I know every single September I'd get into this frenzy where I feel like I have to buy curriculum and I'm my kids aren't learning what they should be learning. And, you know, one of my girlfriends, don't worry about it. They're fine. I was like, okay. She goes, trust me, I would tell you if your children were not doing well, they're doing great. I'm like, okay, thank you. <laughs> so it also gave eyes that people could see my children semi-objectively. 
So if right. there was a hiccup in their learning or in their education, they could kind of say, you know, maybe he needs a little bit more help on that. Or maybe he, he seems to be struggling when I saw him writing something in his penmanship. Did, have you tried doing this with him? So that was, that was really, really helpful. And we're, and we still get together. We just got together on Monday for our 11th not back to school picnic. Oh, that's awesome. You're kind of a pre-pod pod. Yes, absolutely. And many times people will say now on the Facebook groups, they're looking to join a pod. And I always say, if you build it, they will come. Because if you're looking, someone else is looking as well. And they're just kind of waiting for one person to say, let's meet here. Let's make a commitment to continue to meet here. And, and the relationships grow and grow and grow from there. Right. Right. That's lovely. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Nine to Thrive, a podcast about balancing work, community, and creativity. And actually, it's really interesting how much of this stuff is so like it, it's hmm, we're not really encouraged in most systems to create like that, to create groups like that, to create connections like that. And I think that's part of the dependency culture of institutions will provide them for us right but this idea of if you build it yeah go ahead go go and and you may fail a couple times but there's no actual failure in it it's just finding out who clicked and who didn't yes it reminds me a little bit of the activity of creating the my oldest must have been maybe four or five when i realized oh all the christmas traditions are up for grabs the holiday traditions like i don't have to do yeah, on a shelf. I find it too much like surveillance. I agree. I, I um, but I would like to do Santa Lucia and put a wreath on a kid's head. Of it, like it was like, oh my god, I can just decide which one. Yeah. <laughs> which, <laughs> it's it's up to me to do it. I mean, you know, I, I got their father on board and stuff, but it was kind of liberating to be like, oh, these aren't. I, I these don't get handed to you. You can decide. You want to do presents the night before go for it i had friends in one family where it was a divorced family so they made that 10 days later the second massive celebration right so yeah. that both households had like their own just as important and it was really lovely so the kids kind of had like this 10-day period of you know, beautiful because beautiful. It, it yeah the holidays get so hectic yeah anyway and having to throw in, oh, I got to go to dad's or I got to go to mom's. And that does make it. Yeah. And homeschooling, homeschooling to me felt the same. Like, wait, I don't have to make this thing be the break point. We don't have to lose our relationship over this workbook. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> it's not the right workbook. If it's come to that, it's not. And then it becomes so the state does require that you have some basic facility in math. So how are we going to do that? I, you know. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but then again, you know, you can, I think sometimes if, like yourself, if you understand your child then maybe they're just not at that point right now, right. You, you put it away and take it out in six weeks or in eight weeks. And all of a sudden, whatever happened in their brain, now they understand it. And like, Oh, yes. I got it. Yes. Yeah. So, so did you find yourself buying curriculums? 
I did not buy box curriculums. I did pay, well, I think when they were little, I did not pay. I think Easy Peasy was one that they did when they were younger. And I think that one was free. There were some websites that you could pay an annual fee and print out worksheets on things, which yeah. helped with penmanship, for example, um, or basic, you know, okay, busy work kind of, you know, kind of, yeah, practicing. Yeah. You needed that busy work. Yeah. And now that my daughter is older, she independently works through study.com. And she's okay. in her now and she's been doing that for she's going into her third year through study.com and she loves it mm -hmm. I think my son was doing power school and he just decided to go back to public school I think he just needs more direction and more reinforcement and hands-on learning than I could provide for him mm -hmm. so but yeah we didn't really do box curriculum I think maybe history of the world Maybe the first book on that, which was fun, but you, you kind of feel like you, I spent all this money on it and now I have to use it. Right. I, yeah, there, there's definitely a push for like it's a sort of hidden, hidden pressure. Yes. Yeah. 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 Interest, interesting. So, yeah. So he's so this year he decided to go back to school. Is he doing it remotely? He, well, he decided in January that he wanted to. Mm. So we were, you know, kind of going along the way and making the preparations in the spring and he visited the school and he shadowed. So he's doing two days in school and two days at home. And last week was his, was his first week. So. Okay. He comes, he came home from school the first day that he was in school. And for the first time in his life, I said, so how was school today? <laughs> and he proceeded to tell me that he learned nothing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, that's another thing. A lot of people's fear. It, it's really interesting, the whole dynamic of this school. And I have my quibbles, but school at school in the institution, the way that it is set up is not what this remote schooling experience is. Right. So when parents say, well, I can't possibly homeschool this year because how will they go back into school? It's like, but what they're doing right now isn't the school experience either. Right. So question remains, how will they go back? And the way that they'll go back is they'll adjust like literally every kid that's ever switched to school does. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So many kids. But it is really interesting. He's getting this experience that's this never had before pub public school experience. Right. <laughs> Yeah, And, and I, I told him, you know, I said, if, if it's not working out that he is more than likely to go, you know, to come back to homeschooling or to do full remote, but he, he seemed pretty intent on this is what he wants to do. And also he doesn't know any different. So it's sure. not like he's been going to school for eight years and it's been like this. And now this year it's different. This is the only experience he's had with, with going to school. And tell me again, how old he is? He's 13. So he's, he's, he's a 13. Yeah. 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 And I, you know, honestly, the agency of being able to decide for yourself what direction it should go is not, is like worth a lot. Yeah. It makes a different kind of student, frankly. Yeah. What, what do you wish you had known before going into educating your own kids? Um, I really, well, 
I know that I was told over and over, don't worry, they will learn. Mm. I did stress about it though. <laughs> you know, yeah. I did at times look at those books that say, you know, what your third grader should know, what your fourth grader should know. And I would look through them and, oh, does she know this? Did I cover that? Is there a gap in her education? Right. Did I miss out on something? And so I think I spent a lot of time in myself being anxious about that and at times relaying that anxiety to them. Mm. And they would say, mom, don't worry about it. We got it. Well, it's funny because when I was doing it, I kept thinking, oh, you know, maybe I'll write a book or maybe I'll do it. And I was like, but I'm still not sure if this works. And now that my kids have all gone through college, I feel like I can have a, a radio show and a podcast and write about it. Like, okay, okay. I did it right. I did it right. <laughs> it's all fine. It's all fine. But it is funny. Like, I, you know, and I still was pretty, especially as time went on, I still was pretty relaxed and was like, yeah, this is working. And I shouldn't look for external validation for my choices, but I did it anyway. <laughs> And I think that's society that, you know, you've got to prove yourself, you yeah. know, um, it, it's, it's not easy because you're, you're measuring something that's not measurable. Yeah. Because even though my child may not know how to read yet and he's seven, he can identify trees and he can identify plants and he knows how to, you know, grow a garden. So what makes one better or worse than the other? That's really that's really true. It's it's a it's a benchmark of convenience a lot of times and I feel like it's easier to pretend that it's not. It's easy to pretend that it's an objective, you know, necessary moment. Right. But in fact, having everybody do trees in fourth grade and having everybody read by second grade is just sort of a an institutional convenience. It's easier to get them to do some self-directed work if they can read. Yeah. Yep. That's just easier. It's easier to make everybody do trees in the same year, even though my interest in trees was in eighth grade, not in yeah. sixth grade. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I think that's, I think that's one of those unexamined, like I often feel like about this, I often feel like a lot about this social stuff that it's trying to explain water to a fish. Like, yes. Yeah. it's just there it's always there and it must be the best way because it's never really been something to question although for all of us when we were in that institutional system most of us really disliked a lot of it a lot of the time I agree and and I just find that really interesting too like if, if you do want to sit down and make it objective I, I did this one day with someone not too long ago I said I have figured out that I had 40 teachers k through 12 wow yeah yeah and five of them were worth getting out of bed for and then a bunch of them were completely harmless and then between five and ten were actively harmful people wow yeah and that's not a fabulous ratio those are bad odds <laughs> yeah yeah, they certainly aren't great odds. And it's funny because we I think we intrinsically know this because of all the energy we put in at the beginning of certain years to make sure that our kid gets a certain teacher and doesn't get another teacher. And then we do all this harm mitigation if they get that teacher. Right, yeah. I think that's really interesting. One, one friend of mine said, and it was interesting, she said this when our kids were in preschool, but then she did elect to do school 
But then she also took them out later when they disliked it. But she said, it is funny to force kids to go in earlier and earlier, but feel like they come out with less and less, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know that that's always true necessarily, but it was an interesting, it's an interesting corollary. I don't, you know, I, I, I don't think, I mean, my kids did go to public and charter schools for parts of their education. Yeah. And it was just another way. I mean, they did self choose. So that means a lot. Yeah. And they had options, which yeah. means a lot. But, you know, my education was not better than theirs. Not worse, not better, just different. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Although they're not terrified of math like I was for years because of one of those actively bad teachers. <laughs> they probably aren't terrified of authority figures or going down on your permanent record or Right. 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 Or not being a failure. It's they're not afraid of failing things. They just, oh, I didn't get it. I better try it again. Well, yeah, exactly. Um, they're not afraid of that. They're not afraid of taking the time they need, and that's really huge. And they're they're not afraid of figuring out two of well, actually two of them started out with reading disabilities and the third one got injured, got a head injury in high school and ended up with learning disabilities. But they're not afraid to figure out for themselves. Like they always feel like there's a solution to this. They don't feel like it must be me, I'm just stupid. Right. Yep. Which is huge. It is. And that I think is a really interesting hidden thing for people that are worried that their kid going to just homeschool all fall, which makes, my gosh, it makes the day so much more relaxed than this remote schooling. But they worry about losing services. And sometimes I'm like, but are those services necessary if you're homeschooling? Right. Where you can kind of cater how they're learning or when they're learning. Yeah. To what their abilities are. Yeah. If you need to go sit in a, you know, in a big beanbag chair for the rest of the afternoon and look at comic books instead of reading out loud. I mean, okay. Right. (laughs) Do that. But, you know, maybe be prepared to tell me, depending on the age of the kid, but be prepared to tell me the sequence of the story. Like what was the beginning? What was the middle? What was the end? And we've just done language arts. Yes. At dinner. Yep. (laughs) Yeah. uh, Yeah. So, so that's fantastic. So you have one, your 16 year old is now in high school and doing her stuff just sort of self-directed through an online curriculum? Yeah, she picks most of her classes. I did pick um, a literature class for her to learn, but she's also just taken another English, English three, I guess, on study.com. But yeah, she basically, I said, you have to meet these certain things if you, she does want to go on to college. Mm-hmm. So I said, well, most colleges are going to ask for four maths, for four sciences, English, you know, kind of used my high school, my hometown's high school's graduation requirements for her mm-hmm. saying that you need at least this. So that's whatever electives you want to take as well. Mm-hmm. And last year and this year, both, they said, you know, have you, have you figured out what you want to take? Yep. Well, what is it? She let me know. And I'm like, okay, that sounds good to me. Yeah. It's almost a consultancy position. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> I just facilitate the the learning. I don't, at this point, I don't do the teaching. So I I feel like, and that depends on the child. She's just a very Mm -hmm. self-directed child. Yeah. But I think she became that way, interestingly enough, 
and the same thing with my son a little bit because they did not spend their entire childhood being told what to do. They could yeah. make their decisions. They were supported in their decisions by their family and by their, their friends and their siblings. And they became confident decision makers. Yes. Yes. Where I think that if you're at school and you have to raise your hand if you want to go to the bathroom, you have to learn what the teacher is telling you to learn. You know, and when, when is homework going to be due? And when do I have to finish this class by? Then I think that sometimes kids can doubt their own ability to become functional adults. <laughs> because yeah. they're always waiting for someone else to tell them what to do. I want to talk a little bit about the tradition of a magical figure giving out presents. If you have kids around, this would be a great time to turn me off or put me on headphones or something like that. It's going to be a frank talk about it's going to be a frank talk about narrative traditions and lies. People have very strong feelings about the tradition at Christmas of Santa Claus. It's a pretty ubiquitous tradition in the Northern Hemisphere, that of Santa Claus at Christmas. Santa Claus as a figure lives in this unholy alliance of commerce and religion. So much so that people from different religions or no religion at all are often caught up either to their delight or their dismay in this concept of Santa Claus. But it is just a concept, just a narrative. There's nothing inherently, whether it's brand or not, there's nothing inherently good or bad in it. It looms large in our kids if we have created a tradition or if we come from a tradition want to keep this sort of culture of Santa as a Christmas giving entity. And the way that it looms large is in this terribly harsh discourse about the tradition of gullibility and lies. And even the idea of when kids have outgrown it, are you going to tell them about the lie? That is an unnecessarily harsh, unforgiving, and untrue way to talk about the tradition and the holidays. It is disrespectful to kids. It's disrespectful to families. And it's utterly unnecessary. It, it makes, why make people feel bad? So what do you do then? What's, what's about it? Instead of talking about how bad it is, let's talk about how good it can be. What's so interesting about the concept, the narrative of Santa Claus bringing presents to kids is that an entire hemisphere plus of the globe dedicates itself to creating magic for children at a holiday season. How is that a lie? That on some level, we love children so much that most of us, either commercially or religiously or culturally, engage in this behavior of creating a magical experience for children all at the same time time. That's an extraordinary amount of coordination and agreement. 
And the agreement is that we value and, and want to provide this magical experience at the holiday time for children. That's a profound truth and one that should let all of us feel better about the world. Because it's, it's one of those places where if you were an alien, it would just feel so great to know humans that we do this almost, almost without thought. What's also very human is the sad part where we turn around and call it a lie. Which means that when your kids get old enough to say, wait a minute, is this really the guy coming around? They have just become, for all intents and purposes, elves. So they have now switched over from being the receivers to those who generate that magic. That is the spirit to arm your kids with. So that when they are faced by being bystanders for someone who's ruining it for someone younger, that they can say, oh, that's not how it works at all. Like, that's a really terrible way to treat younger kids. Or even to treat peers who still feel like that magic is something they want to hold on to for a couple more years. Also, a completely harmless thing to do. It's a discovery kids will make on their own. And as they make it, we can welcome them to this side. And now we can provide it for other kids. In a lot of ways, what's so interesting is we're kind of tapping into our deepest human selves at this point. The reason we create this kind of magic is because we need it. We need it for ourselves. We need to give it to others. We need the hope. We need the hope and belief that light will come again, as it does when the planet tips back. We need the hope and belief that the crops will grow again as they will as it gets warmer in the northern hemisphere. We need to hope and believe that the earth will come back in the spring, which it does as the planet makes its journey around the sun again, long before the tiny blip that is modern life. These are deep human needs. And here we all are, acting out a narrative that taps into those deep human needs. One more thing about Christmas overload and presents. Kids need to be listened to way more than they need more stuff. We are uniquely able to provide evidence of that listening in this day and age than we've ever been before. The way to indicate that you're listening to a child at the holiday season is to take note of the things that they want. Not to display any kind of impatience or contempt for them. So if they get a catalog from a toy store and start saying, but I want this and I want this and I want this and I want this, our place is not to react to that. We're doing it ourselves. They're modeling what we model, also their children. They're developmentally at a place where that is appropriate. You get this sense of abundance at Christmas. The culture gives a sense of abundance and, of course, potential magic. So the correct way to handle this is to say, those look like fun. I bet that would be great fun to play with. You know, you'll get some stuff. You won't get others. You never know. The magic of Christmas is an unknown. 
it's fine to want the things you want. In fact, you may even ask, what is it that makes you want this? And you'll learn more about your kid. Well, I've always wanted to make my own bubble gum. Take the catalog, make the circles, write the lists. There is nothing wrong with that process. And what I meant about this time of history being uniquely qualified is you've got a phone. If you take a picture of the things your kids want, a lot of times the want ended there. They know they're only going to get some of the stuff. That's how life goes. They, most kids that are able to conceive of Christmas are at a point where they're like, oh, I get some stuff. I mean, if you remember your kid's first Christmas, I say first, but you know, third or fourth, they're so shocked and surprised that they got something at all. They can't believe it. The entitlement only comes when we overload them or create these really bizarre expectations of getting everything or We disregard them so much that their wants are invalid and they feel like they have to scream them because nobody's listening. Start listening. Start being curious about it. You'll become a better gift getter for your kid if you truly understand what's underneath these wants. That's it for this week's 9 to Thrive podcast. Be sure to visit working9tothrive.com, that's with the number nine, to access show notes, find resources, and join the conversation. Thanks for listening.